Hello, welcome to Talk of the Times. I'm Steve Evans. And I'm Alex Grow. In this week's podcast, War and Peace, the cost of war and the cost of peace. The Defence Department is on high alert this week, not so much against military attack, but more about the fallout from a range of deeply sensitive issues. The defamation trial of the former Australian soldier Ben Robert Smith is underway. In court, the holder of the Victoria Cross is denying that he kicked an unarmed, handcuffed Afghan civilian off a cliff before ordering him to be shot. He absolutely denies that claim, and we're not going to speculate one way or the other how that trial will play out. But it does have big implications for the way our military is viewed. And on top of that, Afghan translators who are employed by the Australian government have apparently been placed on a Taliban list of those to be killed for working alongside Australian troops. What are our obligations to them? We've got with us John Blacksland, Professor of International Security and Intelligence Studies at the Australian National University, the ANU, and Harley Dennett, who covers defence matters for the Canberra Times and Australian community media. Professor Blacksland, first of all, let's look at the big defamation trial. What are the implications? What are the things they might be worrying about in the Defence Department? So there's an issue of image for the Defence Force here, uh, which is something that has gone through a bit of a metamorphosis over the years. If you think back to the days of when a federation, when we were fighting in the Anglo-Boer War, and we had the issue of Breaker Morant, um, this larrikin uh, Australian soldier who evidently um, took a few liberties with uh, the use of armed force and uh, exercised extrajudicial powers that were actually beyond his authority and beyond the rules of war. And there's been a lot of people over the years coming to his defence, but we know in hindsight really that uh, that kind of behaviour was in fact reprehensible and it was appropriate that it be subject to a court-martial. And back in those days, those kinds of court-martials ended up before a firing squad. That's not something we accept nowadays. It's not something anybody today would be endorsing. But the idea of the larrikin Australian soldier endured through the First World War and the Second World War. It was also this idea of a, of a citizen soldier who, you know, give him a gun and he's good to go. There have been songs written about this, this idea of this Australian fighting spirit, the ability to just get up and do it. The army of the post-Second World War era is a one of a professional force, one that is actually fought in Korea, in Vietnam, deployed on operations, in peacekeeping operations through the 90s, soldier, teacher, ambassador, peacekeeper. This idea of this noble soldier who was a professional, who was an expert in the restrained use of force. What we then saw was two decades of deployments on operations in the Middle East, particularly in Afghanistan, where the mission was woolly and the requirements of our soldiers was absolutely dissonant. Uh, there was a dissonance between the message that the government was articulating in terms of its strategy, which was very constrained, and the application of force that was expected of our soldiers on the ground. So we had a situation where we actually didn't want to get casualties. We wanted to make a contribution to the alliance. We kind of wanted to help in Afghanistan, but we didn't want to overcommit to the extent that we'd generate political controversy akin to that which happened during the Vietnam War. 
where hundreds of Australians died and many more were wounded. So uh, my, my concern is that we were a bit too clever by half, a bit too cynical, in fact, because what we did was we deployed forces, uh, our best and brightest young men and women, eager to make a positive contribution, akin to that which their earlier uh, pre predecessors had done that gained them the moniker of uh, ambassador, soldier, peacekeeper and teacher. And the experience in Afghanistan wasn't that satisfying. Australians tried to make a difference, but they were constrained from making an enduring difference because our contribution was in the context of a half-baked strategy. Uh, we, we were not there to win, we were there to hold the fort. So in that context, we then had um, the special forces given the mission to actually do the killing of the bad guys, the Taliban, the people who were a direct threat to our presence physically. That was a mission that arguably should have been more widely dispersed amongst the infantry, the combat forces of the army. And by keeping it narrowly to the special forces, what happened was that the same group of soldiers rotating in and out time after time, year after year, some of them up to eight or ten rotations, just ridiculous number of rotations, this can have a corrosive effect on your sense of, of moral compass, particularly in the context where um, we had deliberately avoided managing things like uh, prisoner handling or detainee management. We subcontracted that f function out to others, and lo and behold, they were being released back into the community. So it's not surprising then that for a guy on his fourth or fifth or sixth rotation, running into somebody he recognises from a previous encounter and feeling that the system isn't working and feeling, oh, what the hell, why don't I just take it into my own hands? So I'm not talking about any one individual person. I'm talking about the generic circumstances in which our special forces found themselves in. What we had there was a set of circumstances where we had developed this joint priority effects list, the JPEL, that was a bit like the, the Phoenix program of the Vietnam War era. If you were on that list, it was because the corroborated intelligence from multiple sources, from various technical means, had identified you, or that person on the JPEL, as a bad guy, somebody who was warranted being targeted. Whether they were found armed or unarmed, they were dangerous, and the rules of engagement that were articulated to our soldiers in Afghanistan justified the use of lethal force unrestrained by the otherwise etiquette of war, you know, principles of warfare, whereby you shoot armed soldiers only. And when I say that, this is not something you would normally see a soldier do on the ground like that. But we had witnessed with drones and with uh, overflights of armed aircraft, picking up a target and then corroborating that it is the identified target that the intelligence system has verified as being on the JPEL and therefore somebody that could be attacked and killed on the spot. That happened throughout the war. That happened from the air and it happened on the ground. So this is the context in which the question about where do you draw the line became very, very blurred. And if you're on your fifth, sixth, seventh or eighth rotation, knowing that you're the soldier you might detain rather than kill is going to probably be back out there having another shot at you next time round. That leaves you 
with a very ambiguous disposition. So the Department of Defence has, in addition to its core constituency of, it, of its own people and the veterans community, has three other core constituents or stakeholders. It has the government of the day, which it needs to keep happy. It has the recruits that it needs to bring in, the next generation, the people who will be serving in 10 years' time. And then it has the international community because it needs those alliances around the world. And right now, the department is very concerned about its moral authority with all three of those constituencies. Defence Minister Peter Dutton has told the department that it is not allowed to release any more statements about what has happened. The minister's office is curating every tweet, every social media post. Nothing gets out unless it's leaked which means the department can't express its own concerns. It cares about how this is going to be perceived amongst the recruits, the future recruits, how it's going to be perceived amongst our allies, particularly in the region, and it cares how the government is going to react to this so that it can keep doing the things that it needs to do to preserve the moral authority of the Australian Defence Force. Harley, you say three constituencies. There are four there's a political, there's a voters. And I can imagine listening to what John said, a lot of voters thinking, what was a dirty old business? People speaking generally, people get themselves on bad guy lists. Some soldier finds himself in a situation where you can resist a trigger or you can't. Maybe some guy speaking generally didn't resist the trigger. I've got more to worry about than that. The people who train the future leaders in defence are concerned about the values of the Australian community and making sure that our future soldiers, sailors and aviators understand and deeply get those values. Those values are the things that underpin our role in this world. Those values are the things that tell us that we are in a good war. If we end up doing less than good, and the Australian public sees that as a result of things like the Brereton Afghanistan inquiry, then they're going to question whether or not we should get into the next good war that the government wants to take us into. So the Defence Department has articulated a set of values which are in part, I think, aimed at addressing these concerns. Those values are professionalism, loyalty, integrity, courage, innovation and teamwork. And they're all noble values. They're all ones that we can all uh, acknowledge as worthy of aspiring to. The problem is, though, that, and, and this is why you're right, Holly, to point this out, the future isn't going to look like Afghanistan and Iraq. It's going to look more like something very different, but probably something in our neighbourhood, in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Uh, and probably against a peer or near-peer competitor, uh, much more technologically enabled, uh, much more uh, politically uh, uh, diverse in, its, in, its, in the capabilities it's got to offer, uh, uh, presenting a challenge that will require uh, the level of response, the likes of which we probably haven't seen since in, in our lifetimes, and for most of us. Um, You're not using the C word. I haven't so far, no. Um, uh, because, look, I, I, when I, in, in the geostrategic SWOT analysis for Australia, which I wrote a little while ago, I looked at the strengths and weaknesses, opportunities and threats that we face as a nation. Uh, and uh, 
One of the things I think we need to understand is it's it's about great power contestation and the ramifications of great power contestation. So it's not just China. There are many other actors in this pla- in this space uh, responding to uh, and engaging with China uh, and the rise of China. Uh, but our engagement is, is, is all... If we only see this in terms of China, we're going to miss the, the challenges and the opportunities. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I, in, in my writings and my discussions, have been stressing the need for engagement with our neighbourhood with Southeast Asia, particularly Indonesia, the Pacific uh, and beyond. Hallie, you spoke about the silencing of defence and trying to control the message, but we have seen serving members come out and urge the government to grant visas and help translators in Afghanistan who are under threat from the Taliban to get to Australia. Does defence risk further reputational damage? Defence people who have come forward in support of the interpreters in Afghanistan who help save Australian lives in support of the Australian mission there do so at their own risk because they believe that this is a moral imperative for, for this country. That's actually also the government's policy position and while and has been the, poli- the government's policy position since 2012. So the government has brought people back, large numbers of people, but now it's really urgent because of the closure of the embassy in Kabul. They have brought 90 people back in the last month, but they're going to have to bring a lot more back. This is in response to some agitation by veteran groups in Australia who are deeply upset at people they've got a personal relationship with being left behind. And when it is personal, when you know somebody, when you've eyeballed them, you've shared meals with them and you've lived with them and you've you've taken risks together and you've trusted each other and you've watched each other's back, you develop a level of appreciation and closeness that simple policy dictums from Canberra don't quite capture. And my sense is that uh, the government has underappreciated the significance, the strength of feeling in the veteran community and the knock-on effect on civil society of ignoring that voice. Now, back in 1975, in April 1975, the Australian government, as I'm a great admirer of many of the things that Whitlam government did, but one of the shameful things it did was to deny access to the locally employed staff in the embassy from getting access to the flights back to Australia. Those people suffered and many of them died. There is a strong desire for us not to see that happen again. The Taliban have a, a track record for perfidy and for extreme violence against anybody who crosses them. We owe it to these people. We owe it to get them out. John Blacksland, Professor of International Security and Intelligence Studies at the ANU. And Harley Dennett, who covers defence matters for the Canberra Times. And thank you for listening. I'm Alex Crow. And I'm Steve Evans. And we'll be back next week with Talk of the Times. <laughs>